Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. This week, we're going to be talking about the 1986 remake of a 1950. Eight movie based on a 1957 short story that initially appeared in Playboy. Yes, that's right, Playboy. Uh, the Fly from 1986. It was directed by David Cronenberg, who also wrote, but we're going to get to that as well for this. Um, David Cronenberg, of course, is well regarded in the, the film industry as really a pioneer in body horror as far as a genre like Images that involve like stuff that is designed to make you uncomfortable as a viewer. Uh, he is known for stereo, videodrome, scanners. Uh, the 1996 film Crash, which is not connected to the 2000-something movie Crash, uh, and also History of Violence. Uh, it was produced by a couple of people, but the most notable one was Stuart Kornfeld, who passed away in 2020. Uh, he was... A frequent collaborator and partner with Ben Stiller. In fact, they actually founded the Red Hour Productions Company together. And in addition to The Fly, they also did movies like Dodgeball, Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, and The Ruins. Uh, I said earlier that Cronenberg was a writer, and I'm still going to get to that. But the other writer credited is Charles Edward Pogue, who is known for writing, you know, Psycho 3. He also wrote Dragonheart, uh... Call the Conqueror and The Hound of Baskervilles, which is based on, of course, a Sherlock Holmes short. He's also written some novels and some plays in his career. Uh, nothing really jumped out of me when I looked into those. All right, now, as I said again, this, this movie is loosely based on the original 1958 film, The Fly, as well as the short story of the same name from 1957. Uh, the short story was actually released in an issue of Playboy because a lot of people don't realize that those magazines are not just nude magazines. They contain jokes, articles, and things like that. It's just that was something that was also included in it. It's changed from what it was when it was initially launched by Hugh Hefner, but I'm not getting into that any further than I already have. The original of The Fly, uh, a man is messing with a teleportation device of some sort, and he accidentally swaps... His hand, arm, and head with a fly. And, you know, The Simpsons did a really good job making fun of this. One of their treehouse of horror. And, of course, the movie ends with you see the fly with the human head and arm in the, fly, in the spider web with the spider approaching it. And that's where you get the help me, help me line that came from that. So that's originally where that came from. I'm going to give you a little bit of a brief synopsis here. And the reason I'm going to give you a brief synopsis is because when I get into the writing aspect, I'm actually going to go a little more in-depth on that because there's there's quite a bit to that. You know, Jeff Goldblum plays the lead character Seth Brundle, who is a scientist. He's working on teleporter pods that he has in his warehouse slash house. He runs into Gina Davis's character, uh, Veronica Quaif, known as called Ronnie by the people that are in the movie. And, Gets her to come back to his warehouse to show her the teleporter. He tells her that they can't do, you know, human or lot living things because he hasn't figured out the algorithm on that yet. And when they experiment on that, they actually kill a baboon, which some people were kind of uncomfortable with that. And there's more that gets into that as well, which I'll also delve into. But eventually he transports himself and a fly gets into the system and it goes from there. Uh, this movie scared the crap out of me as a kid. 
You know, I've always kind of had a thing about bugs in general, spiders specifically, but for some reason this one is just, it always stuck with me. It was made on a $9 million budget, but it grossed well over $60 million at the box office, both nationally and internationally. Rave reviews, massive critical and audience acclaim for this movie. It was the largest commercial success of Cronenberg's career up to now. I mean, he won an Academy Award, but it's actually the only film of his to win an Academy Award. And through this movie, we got a sequel film, a comic miniseries, tons of remake rumors. You know, there was ultimately a planned and scrapped project from Cronenberg that would have, if it didn't genuinely, if it didn't immediately sequel The Fly or Fly 2, it was going to be involved in the same kind of in-universe kind of thing. But it just, it, it came out of nothing, unfortunately. I say unfortunately that, you know, I have such fond memories of the movie, even though, like I said, it terrified me that it's probably best that it did not happen, you know? <laughs> All right, so again, Seth Brundle, the main character, was played by Jeff Goldblum. Obviously, you know who Jeff Goldblum is. I mean, he's been in the Jurassic Park franchise, the Independence Day franchise. He was in Cats and Dogs, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, Powder, uh, he was on television in Law and Order Criminal Intent as Detective Zach Nichols for a little while. And he played the collector's brother, the Grandmaster, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Thor Ragnarok. He also has a jazz band. He's quite proficient behind the piano and behind the, the bass, go figure. Veronica Quaife, known as Ronnie in the film, is played by Gina Davis. You know, she was in Tootsie, of course, Beetlejuice, Thelma and Louise, A League of Their Own, and the Stuart Little series. As far as her films go, you know, television-wise, she's been in episodes of Family Family Ties, Commander-in-Chief, Grey's Anatomy. She was in the Exorcist television show. She was also in Glow on the Netflix, which is, you know, gorgeous ladies of wrestling. That's that's a whole other thing. The character Stathis Borens, who is actually Veronica's boss and former boyfriend, is played by John Getz. Uh, he has been a character actor that has appeared in many films throughout the years. The most notable would be Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. He was in Zodiac, Social Network. But he's also been on both Doom Patrol and American Horror Story Apocalypse. The biker girl named Tawny that gets picked up by Seth in this film is played by Joy Bouchelle. And she is an both an important and an unimportant character because of what it leads to with her, with him getting her to begin with. Uh, she was in Quest for Fire, Humongous, and Look Who's Talking. Dr. Brent Cheevers, who was another doctor, was played by Leslie Carlson. He passed away in 2014. He was in the original Black Christmas, Videodrome, and he's been in several of the Anne of Green Gables adaptations that they have done throughout the years. Uh, there's a... The biker girl Tawny is actually with a boy, a biker man named Mark, who Jeff Goldblum, after having gone through the transporter, his character Seth Brundle arm wrestles him for her and actually causes a compound fracture in his arm because, you know, the proportionate strength of an insult and insect and all that. Mark was played by a former five-time Canadian heavyweight boxing champion and multiple-time world title challenger, George Chavallo. George Chavallo was never knocked down in 93 professional bouts, including fights with Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, and George Foreman. Ali personally said that his hands have never hurt so much after a boxing match as when he fought George Chavallo. So he's very, he's very well regarded in the, in the boxing world. 
Cronenberg also appeared in the film. He cameoed as a gynecologist. It's, it doesn't have a huge cast because it's it's very much a character-driven movie, so there's not a whole lot as far as that goes. Saddle up because there's a lot of notes here with production. There's a lot of stuff that went into this movie. You know, I mentioned earlier that the main producer, there was another producer named Kip Oman. In the 80s, he went to Pogue, the initial writer, with an idea to remake The Fly. He had read the short story and he watched the film and agreed that, you know, this is something that he wanted to do. Let's let's go ahead and do this. So they teamed up with Kornfeld and pitched it to 20th Century Fox, who was also the distributor of the original The Fly film. They were extremely enthusiastic. They thought that, you know, these two, they have a lot of energy. They're very good for this. So let's go ahead. And they actually gave Pogue an advance to write a screenplay. The first story was similar to the short story, but rather than just the sudden appearance of the head and the arm, it had more of a gradual metamorphosis and would tell a better long-form story rather than an instant change. Descent from a man into a full-on monster, you know, rather than just having a slightly monstrous existence. They felt this would be a much better thing to watch this kind of thing happen. After reading that initial script, 20th Century Fox, the executives there were so unimpressed and turned off from this that they actually immediately withdrew and nearly left it for dead. Like they were like, no, we're not, we're not doing this at all. Cornfield, I don't know if the man begged. I don't know if he pleaded, but somehow he managed to orchestrate an agreement with them that Fox will distribute the film if they could find another source to provide financially for it. Shockingly, Mel Brooks became a financial producer of this film and his company Brooks Films as well. Mel Brooks, of course, is very well known for satire and comedy style movies like Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs, Brief History of the World. I mean, the Young Frankenstein. Not the kind of thing that we see here. You know, he'd frequently collaborated with Kornfeld in the past. I mean, they'd actually even worked together to produce David Lynch's Elephant Man film. But given the subject matter of the movie, Mel Brooks decided to leave his name off the credits. That way people would not go in expecting a Mel Brooks type film or a Mel Brooks comedy and be absolutely shocked with what they got instead. One of the conditions that Brooks came on with was he actually wanted a different writer. Pogue was removed and replaced with a writer named Wallen Green. Uh, this man had won an Oscar for the Hellstrom Chronicle, which was a, a documentary about humans and the struggle survival amongst insects and whatnot. But he also directed a wrote for Eraser and Robocop too. And he did the miniseries adaptation of killing Jesus, a history. So, you know, he, he seemed like he'd be a good fit at first. However, after reading through the draft that he made, Brooks felt that it wasn't quite right. And Cronenberg agreed, or not Cronenberg, I'm sorry. Let me, I'm getting to Cronenberg in a bit. Brooks felt that it wasn't quite right. So instead of just scrapping that and scrapping everything they had so far, they actually brought Pogue back in to work on that screenplay and polish it up and get it ready to go. While that was all going on, they were trying to find a director. Their first choice was David Cronenberg. He was at that time. Attached to Dino De Laurentiis' Total Recall film, 
So he was just, he wasn't available. They weren't sure what they were going to go with from there. So Kornfeld managed to watch a few short films of a young British director named Robert Beerman and felt that, you know, he'd be a good choice. Now, Robert Beerman's also directed The Blonde Bombshell, Vampire's Kiss, and Apology. He doesn't have a very extensive Hollywood resume as far as his writing, but his films have been very, very good. So they actually flow him in to meet with them. He met with both Pogue and Brooks. They liked him, and they got him ready and signed him on, and he began pre-production. Unfortunately, his family at the time was vacationing in Africa, and his young daughter was killed by an accident that happened down there. You know, he immediately had to leave, and of course, they're like, no, go, go. You need to deal with this. He was gone for a month. After a month, Mel Brooks contacted him and asked him, you know, strictly because of the contract, I'm sure, do you know if this is something you're still going to be able to do or not? And he told him at this point it was too soon to decide that. Mel Brooks understood and gave him a few more months. After three more months, however, Beerman contacted Brooks and told him that he just he was unable to commit at that time. And it actually took him a few years before he ended up making another film. Brooks completely understood that, and they released him from his contract. They're like, okay, there's no hard feelings here, water under the bridge. However, by this time, Cronenberg was no longer attached to Total Recall. They had their first choice back, and he agreed to do it if he was allowed to rewrite the script. And that's where the writing gets a little haywire there. Pogue's initial draft, the character of Seth Brundle was actually named Jeff Powell and was married to a woman named Barbara, who was the Ronnie... Uh, analogous person. That's not the right phrase. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> she was the equivalent, rather, of Ronnie. And in this version, he was working on his teleporter, but he didn't want to tell his employer or his best friend what he was doing, which, of course, understandably angered his employer. He nearly pulls funding for the project unless he gets full disclosure. He gets the disclosure, and eventually it works, but when he tests it on himself, a test accidentally involves a fly. Now, at this point, his script goes through a very similar path to what the ultimate final film was. The only thing that really differs is the fact that, you know, he's married, you know, his best friend showed it to his boss at this point, And that's where we get the infamous monkey cat scene that comes in, which I will get to that a little bit more. Remember that phrase, monkey cat. And... Jeff breaks into the man's office to destroy the teleporter and to kill him. He kills his boss, sets the thing off, and it blows up. His wife at this point is pregnant and has no idea if she got pregnant before or after he went through the thing. So the movie en or the, the script ends on her having a dream where she gives birth to a baby that's actually a maggot. That's as gross as it sounds. Now, where Cronenberg's script differed tremendously, like it, while it kept the same basic plot line, Jeff became Seth and was single and a very eccentric, brilliant scientist. The boss and best friend were combined together to create the Stathens Borans character, and from scratch, the dialogue was completely rewritten. You know, certain key moments, like losing body parts slowly, were kept and expanded upon. He also decided to keep the main character of Seth articulate for much longer because in Pogue's initial script, he actually lost his way to speak at about two-thirds of the way through the movie, whereas in the final film, Seth is able to talk almost all the way up until the very end. 
He also added in his trademarks, body horror, you know, sexuality, personal identity, and he emphasized Seth's increasing mania and decided to make the transformation was going to be a metaphor, a very horrible metaphor, and I don't mean horrible as in poorly done, I mean horrible as in horrifying to watch, for disease. He also chose to make him clearly like a hybrid, bizarre kind of monster rather than just a giant fly because in the initial script, he just became a giant fly. Now, the maggot baby dream was actually kept, but they moved it for plot purposes rather than to have like a shock ending film. And in addition to that, the monkey cat scene was Seth Brundle's attempt to try and find a cure. Now, I said I'm going to go a little bit more into detail on that, and I will. Fair warning, it's a little graphic. If you don't want to hear it, I'm going to go ahead and suggest you skip to about the 1830, 1845 mark. All right, you ready? Basically, he takes the living monkey that he has and a cat and puts them in opposite teleporters and tries to teleport them to see if that can fuse and unfuse their molecules. Unfortunately, it fuses the animals together in a horrifying monkey-cat hybrid, which attacks him, and he actually has to kill the thing with his bare hands, with, like with his walker, because at this point he's struggling to walk. You know, they shot this scene. They tested footage with this scene. People were extremely uncomfortable with it. You know, and at that point, it's, it's almost like Cronenberg realized, I've gone pretty far before, but... People don't really care about seeing humans get beat to death. Animals, especially animals they recognize, that's that's a different story entirely. And I, it, it just it was it was not okay. And ultimately, that scene was cut. If you have this film on Blu-ray, the it is in there as a deleted scene amongst a couple of other deleted scenes. But I've seen it, and personally, I don't recommend anybody see it. All right, so yeah, if you're rejoining me now. From about seven, 16 minutes and 55 seconds to about 18 minutes, 18.20, we were discussing the monkey cat scene. Again, it's it's disturbing. It's not something that really needs to be watched unless you are just a glutton for that kind of thing. Which, if you're an avid Cronenberg fan, you may very well be. But I'm going to suggest you don't. So There was also a scene where a fly leg bursts through his side and he has to amputate it himself with his teeth. You know... Ronnie doesn't give birth at the end of the film. However, they do have, they have two deleted scenes, one of which was the maggot or giving birth to a maggot again. Another scene was giving birth to a baby with butterfly wings. The reason these scenes were put in is because at the end of the film, she ends up back with Stathosporans, and that really upset people to see that. So they ended up cutting those out, and we just have the sad ending that we get, and I'm not going to tell you about the ending. You know... Pretty extensive rewrites. The writing process was pretty pretty thick on this one. However, despite all that, Cronenberg insisted to the Screen Actors Guild and the Screenwriters Guild that they share screenplay credit between him and Pogue because his exact words, my vision could not have happened without the groundwork that Pogue's script had laid. And, you know, that's very commendable on his end because he very, he very easily could have said, nope, I wrote the whole thing. And... There would have been very little things they could have done about it. When it came time to actually film, Cronenberg used his normal crew that he uses. I mean, 
he he uses the same grips, key guys, sound editors, all all that kind of stuff. It's always the same with his movies. He's got very much his people. He personally met with both Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis to sign them, and he also signed Chris Wallace to do the effects and creature design. Chris Wallace did the effects and creatures from the movie Gremlins. So that was a pretty good pick on their end because those effects still hold up very well today. And filming began on December 1st of 1985. It lasted for about three and a half months. Post-production only took a couple of, like, three or four weeks. It really, it was a smooth process all the way through, and it was ultimately done and able to be released. The makeup and effects were designed over a three-month period. They started with the final creature, the Brundlefly creature, which I'm not going to tell you what that looks like or how it got to that point, but they worked backwards from there to get all the various steps that Seth Brundle goes through in his transformation to get to that point. You know, Cronenberg and Wallace together decided that this was going to, it was to work as a metaphor for aging, illness, things like that. And his final form, of course, was never meant to look like a viable, robust living thing. It wanted, they wanted it to look deformed and hideous because it was something that was completely not supposed to be. They went through seven different distinct stages of transformation here, causing Goldblum at times to sit for hours in makeup. Stages one and two were like subtle rash-like skin discoloration, you know, lesions, sores, short bristly hairs growing out of his face and out of a wound that he had on his back at one point. You know, it's the basic beginning transformation. Like you get that kind of stuff with Jekyll and Hyde and some of the iterations they've done. Stages 3 and 4A involved them starting to use prosthetics on his face to make his face look like lumpy or, or openly swelling, things like that. They also would use later uh, prosthetic things on his arms, his feet, torso, you know, wigs with bald spots, crooked prosthetic teeth because he's losing his teeth, he's losing his hair, he's losing his fingernails as he's transforming. 4B was ultimately deleted from the film itself, which is where, you know, Seth Brundle stops wearing clothes altogether and he's wearing a full body suit. 4B was deleted from the film because this is the suit that he was wearing during the monkey cat scene. 5 was the second full body suit, and that's the one with the exaggerated deformities. Uh, he, you know, he has distorting contact lenses to make one of his eyes look much larger than the other one. His teeth are very much fallen apart and gone because at this point he's discovered that the way he can eat because he can't swallow solid food at all he has to spit up on it like a fly does to dissolve it to swallow it uh, six is the final brundle fly creature we get which was dubbed space bug by the crew and you know that was not a whole lot of makeup with that one honestly because they did a lot of full body puppet work and partial puppet work because the strict design, the way this thing was, you really weren't going to get a whole lot of interaction between somebody trying to dress up like this and do that. It just, it, it didn't work. You know, this is an example. I said last week that in Aliens, the Alien Queen looks fantastic because they made it with practical effects and they built it as opposed to an attempt to computer generate it at the time, which while they could have done it, it just would not have looked as good. It's the same thing here. They could have put... Jeff Goldblum in a giant fly costume, and it would not have looked quite as good as it did when you get the ultimate effect of using the puppets. All right, for the next 20 seconds, it's a brief spoiler, so just skip ahead to 24 minutes if you don't want to hear, okay? 
There was the seventh stage, which involves the mortally wounded Seth Brundle, because at this point his fully transformed state has accidentally fused with part of the teleporter, and he's you know mortally injured from this point. So, yeah. That's the seven stages of transformation that he goes through. The score was done by Howard Shore, who Howard Shore has collaborated with Cronenberg on all but one of Cronenberg's films. He's done six collaborations with Martin Scorsese. He's won three different Academy Awards for his music. He did the, the music for Silence of the Lambs, as well as the music for all three Lord of the Rings and all three Hobbit live-action films that were done. He also did the score with the London Philharmonic Symphony. A lot of films, specifically horror films back in those days, were using synthetic, strict musical cues. I love the fact that they went with an orchestral score with this because it adds a lot more weight to it. You know, it it, it becomes similar to how I said before in a previous episode, the music itself almost becomes part of the story and part of the characterization. You know? Now, Cronenberg did license uh, singer-songwriter Brian Ferry to make a song for the movie called Help Me. He liked the song. He wanted to use the song. But he felt that it didn't quite fit the tone of the movie itself. And initially he was going to be putting it over the end credits scene. However, test audiences didn't like it there. They felt that it kind of... To go from the ending you got to that music, they felt it was it was almost too jarring. So the only time you hear that song is in the bar scene when he's arm wrestling the character of Mark. Now, they use a lot of scenes from the movie in the music video. So, But yeah, the music is very much, very much a part of this. As I said before, this was a massive success. You know, there was a lot of acclaim from critics, mainly to Goldblum and the effects in the movie. Despite the gore, the considered controversial director, the movie was, a like I said, it was a massive success. It grossed over $60 million, and it gets a $9 million budget. That's pretty damn good. Cronenberg, uh, like I said before, he meant for the film to be an analogy for aging, disease in general, but if he had to pick any kind of disease, it would have specifically been like cancer, about like the way it discolors your skin, causes growth and everything. This movie came out in 1986. The big thing that was going around in the 80s from a medical standpoint that had everybody, you know, completely freaked out and upset was AIDS and HIV. A lot of people, when they looked at this film, thought it was an analogy for AIDS. And Cronenberg has said that I didn't write it with that intention. If you or your lover has AIDS and you're watching this film, you're obviously going to see parallels because it was absolutely everywhere and it was very easy to spot this kind of thing. So... Again, it wasn't meant to do that, but if looking at it now, you can absolutely see it from that angle. It makes a lot of sense that people would think that it was more of a, a take on AIDS rather than just aging. And again, aging because the gradual losing teeth and hair and your skin getting discolored. You know, it's, it, it is what it is. Again, it's, it's body horror. It's what Cronenberg is best known for. Uh, again, with the critics, you know, like, Siskel and Ebert, they called it the best film in 1986. In a 2005 edition of Time Magazine, it was included in the list of 100 greatest films and the top 25 horror films. It won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. It won a Saturn Award for both Jeff Goldblum as a Best Actor and the Makeup, but it also won a Saturn Award for Best Horror Movie as well. 
If you've ever heard the phrase, be afraid, be very afraid, that's where this comes from. That phrase has become so ingrained in pop culture and is attached to so many different things that it gets forgotten that it originated in this film. And it originates in this film because Seth Brundle wants to take the biker chick through the teleporter because he feels that since he went through it, it's what revitalized him. He wants her to go through. She doesn't want to go through. He's like, you know, you don't have to be afraid. At which point the door has been opened and Veronica is there and she says, no, be afraid. Be very afraid. That for like I said, that that that's everywhere. I mean, they use that movie in freaking Doctor Doolittle with Eddie Murphy. It's been everywhere, and people forget that this is where that phrase originates from. You know, I mentioned before that this movie spawned a sequel, which was directed by Chris Wallace. And while the film was a little less well received, it was still very successful. The sequel focused on Seth Brundle's son, who inherited his mutated fly DNA. He's kept in a lab because of, since of his, his part fly, his, his growth was accelerated. So he goes from child to adult in a very short amount of time. He's also extremely smart and they go a lot more in detail with his transformation when he becomes the fly character that he becomes. They also have a thing where they've got his teleporters and the people that are trying to get them to work, they keep his son there under the guise of, oh, well, we rescued you and we're raising you. Can you help us figure out why this thing does not work? And eventually he figures out what goes on and he gets himself through the teleporter and it fixes him. But that's a story for another time that I don't know if I'm ever going to get to. I saw that film when I was a kid. I liked that film a lot, probably because of Daphne Zuniga, but that's beside the point. Um, a limited comic book series was released called The Fly Outbreak. It was a direct sequel to number two. You know, it was, it only had five issues. I've never managed to get a hold of them. It involves Seth's son's character trying to figure out where all this stuff's coming from. They've tried to make alter, there's been alternate sequels they've tried to make. Remakes have been planned. They just never quite make it. The one from Cronenberg himself, he actually wrote a script for it and wanted to do it. Spent eight years trying to get it off the ground and just whether it was because he was getting sidetracked with other things or it just wasn't the right time, it ultimately did not get made. Jeff Goldblum himself has said that if Cronenberg ever makes a sequel, he'd love to be involved. It's like, I know that my character is gone, but at the same time, I'd like to, you know, he could have had a brother, he could have had an uncle. I'm older now. There's there's ways to work around that. Yeah, I think it's best they never remake this film. It's one of those movies that, because of what it ended up being, it stands completely apart from the movie that it was remade off of. Some movies do that, and they try and stick more to the source material that came before that, like Total Recall or the Carl Urban-led Dread. Personally, I prefer the Carl Urban-led Dread because I do love the Judge Dread comics. However, most people associate Judge Dread with Sylvester Stallone and that terrible 1990s movie. So that's what we ended up getting off of that. But the fly doesn't come from that. The fly itself, because even though it has the same name and it has the ultimate, the human character becoming merged with a fly, that's pretty much where the comparison stops. It's a completely different type of movie. And I, again, it scared the crap out of me as a child. There are moments of it as an adult that still make me a little uncomfortable to watch, but I greatly enjoy the movie. 
Side note, my wife has probably heard me describe multiple scenes about this movie while I'm recording, so there's probably a less than 0% chance now that I'll get her to watch it. <laughs> uh, the movie has influenced a lot of things. Uh, they took, well, the Baxter Stockman character in Ninja Turtles existed before this. It absolutely affected how they had him going forward. You know? So it's it's had a pretty far-reaching impact, like I said, between that, the be afraid, be very afraid. And again, it's Cronenberg's most successful critical and financial film. I'm not going to say it's my favorite film of Cronenberg, because my favorite Cronenberg film is Scanners. But The Fly's a close second. So, all right, guys. Thank you for listening to me rant about this. I know this was a little bit different than some of the other movies I've done. I'm not going to do a whole lot of horror movies. At least not very often. The only horror movies I really plan on covering after this. October, I'm going to be doing Evil Dead. Evil Dead 2. Ash for, uh, Army of Darkness, rather. And the remake of Evil Dead. And I might talk about Ash vs. Evil Dead 2. Um, but until we get to that point, I'm going to say no more further on that. Next week. We're going to discuss a movie that is one of my personal favorite movies. It is a critical cinematic masterpiece. And it really should have gotten Mickey Rourke an Academy Award. But we will talk about why he did not next week when we talk about the 2008 Darren Aronofsky film, The Wrestler. You don't have to be a fan of professional wrestling to love that movie or to even understand that movie. But it might help a little bit. <laughs> so, until next week... I am your host, Kid Kong. Once again, I will see you at the movies.